I think that what makes Tucker interesting is he was really willing to either take positions or go places that a lot of people wouldn't go. So, for example, he was one of the only public news personalities that was against the Ukraine war, that is asking for peace in the Ukraine war. Okay, but why? everyone, welcome back to the Loopcast, Catholic Vote's weekly rundown of all things faith, culture, and politics. And this week, we had some big news sent through the media landscape. Tucker Carlson has been let go from Fox News. They parted ways. It was a nasty breakup. It's been everywhere in the tabloids. There's a lot of speculation as to what happened, but here at the Loopcast, we have the facts as to how much he was worth, what he meant to Fox News, and maybe what this means for media and news going forward here. Josh, do you have any idea how much he was worth at Fox News? Yeah, he got paid between 15 to $20 million. And that's because, you know, those hosts that can fill those primetime hours where you get the most number of viewers, that there's, that's a very competitive uh, space there. And if you can inform and entertain people a lot, uh, you get paid big dollars. Um, the, the, but here's the thing is, it was an abrupt end. I'm not so sure it was, you know, uh, acrimonious. At least it, it was, hasn't been salacious. I mean, we haven't seen Fox run down Tucker. Tucker hasn't said horrible things about Fox, at least so far. I mean, some of that stuff might play out. But my, ga- my guess is that Rupert Murdoch, the head of uh, Fox News, I think he just didn't like uh, Tucker Carlson's coverage of the January 6th riots. Um, at that, that's the early indication of what was going on. Uh, but it does. I mean, now Tucker's a free agent. You know, he's got money to burn. You know, he could do whatever he wants to. Uh, I've heard lots of different speculation of what he could do. I, I, I think he would actually be great if he ran for president with nothing to lose, you know, and just just get out there and pretend like you're a moderator yourself, you know, because the moderators to get through these debates are terrible. So he could just get up there and he could, you know, ask tough questions to DeSantis and ask t- tough questions to Trump and and then I'll add the other guys that are like sitting at 4%. It's like, well, why are you even here? You know, just, I think it'd be entertaining. I think he'd do a great, great job. I think he'd I'd stay focused on. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, of course. I mean, I'd watch it anyway, but it'd be much more entertaining. But, you know, I think, um, I think he's also got the uh, possibility. And I know you mentioned this to me, Tom, earlier. Uh, he could go like a Joe Rogan route and, and do his own uh, show right to the internet, you know, podcasting show. He'd bring in so many interesting guests. I think that would be a great opportunity, uh, potential for him. But, you know, there's also, it's kind of funny. This is the guy who got fired by MSNBC, fired by CNN, and now fired by Fox. I mean, that's like the trifecta right there. Go for it, man. (laughs) Who else could say that? That's great. Uh, But he is an entertaining guy, and I really, really enjoyed watching him. I've had so many people... Sometimes you can get kind of in a bubble, and I try really hard not to get in a bubble. And I had a lot of my friends say, "Man, Tucker's the only reason I ever watch Fox News." And I, I've heard a lot of people say that, but I got to say this: here's my little hot take. Fox News will be just fine. They're going to find somebody else. He's not going to be as someone I enjoy probably as much as Tucker. But the fact is, that's a a brand that's been going now for 16 years. That channel, uh, when Bill O'Reilly got. Uh, kicked off the air for his indiscretions, people thought, that's a massive gaping hole. What will Fox ever do to fill it? And in fact, what they did is they found Tucker Carlson. So there are people out there, you know, um, I, will it be the same? No. Uh, will I watch it? Probably not as much. But 
the target demographic tends to be people who, you know, they enjoy watching lots of, uh, you know, cable news commentary, you know, uh, prime time. So the demographics of cable TV skew kind of 55 plus. I think Fox News will probably continue doing what it's doing. Um, and I, but I have to say, I, I, I think Tucker's great and I can't wait to see what he does next. Yeah. And speaking of numbers, so in terms of Fox shows and to put in perspective, Fox's viewership is actually CNN and MSNBC combined and then some. So it's really not even, they're not even really in the same stratosphere. But for Fox, uh, in the month of March, according to Nielsen, Tucker brought in 3.25 million viewers on average. Uh, the closest show to him was The Five at 3.06 million, Jesse Waters' primetime at 2.67 million, Hannity at 2.51 million, and then Brett Baer at 2.2 million. So clearly he was the top show, uh, specifically for March. But an interesting thought, too, when you talk about demographics, most cable news consumers are older. They're over the age of 54. So when advertisers are looking at shows that they want to buy for, they're looking at that 25 to 54 demographic. And in terms of how he performed there, he brought in 421,000 viewers as compared to the next closest, the five, 317,000 oh, viewers. Right. But, but oh, are we going to say the same thing? Well, the problem is there's an organized boycott through online mobs of Tucker Carlson. And so all the mainstream brands stayed away from him. And the only thing you have were like direct sales, like MyPillow or, you know, uh, some sort of like veterans, help the veterans. You know, I'm not trying to downplay any of this stuff. I think it's great. But um, they weren't able to get the main advertisers. So, that, so Fox was having to sell the ads on that show, even though it's the best show on their network, at a kind of at a discount. Uh, but it worked out for Fox anyway, because they're like, there's literally hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of people who are getting cable just because they want Tucker. So it ended up being a wash. The question is, if they can keep the eyeballs and get someone else entertaining that doesn't render a boycott, then they'll make more money. But um, I just, in general, I think uh, this was more of an emotional decision by Rupert Murdoch. That's my guess. He yeah. just didn't like the coverage of J6. Spe speculation is he made the decision personally. And, but I guess the reason that this is so compelling, it's, it's not necessarily the business, which I think you made interesting points about Fox News business. This is a fine. business. Cable news is a business. No question. I think that what makes Tucker interesting is he was really willing to either take positions or go places that a lot of people wouldn't go. So, for example, he was one of the only public news personalities that was against the Ukraine war, that is asking for peace in the Ukraine war, which is not a very popular take in terms of war hawk, Republicans, and Democrats, of course, are all pro-war all of a sudden. Okay, but why? Here she's why, why is it that most cable news guys, men and women really, why are so many people cable to be in favor of war? But it's a, it's a power dynamic because Tucker was large enough it's to be able story. to make that position. It's a story. Okay, I, 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 look, I, Tucker's great for opposing it, and I think he's opposing it because he believes in it. I'm asking you the, the, the question behind that. Why is it that so many cable show hosts, talk show hosts, are support the war in you know. All right. I, I, I know what you're looking for here, but I'm going to give two reasons. One, it, it sells. There's clicks with war for sure. But two, the hosts, even if they personally oppose that, they don't have enough clout to be able to go against that narrative. They just have to follow the you mean orders their employer, handed out of them. Right. Their employer. Yes, their right. employer. Tucker could have left six months ago. He was big no, I know, but the employer, of course, has that even more of a, uh, an incentive, right? So yeah. CNN you know, is considered liberal, so is MSNBC. But why would these networks actually be kind of okay with, you know, oh, it's a else. war? It's us. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it, it, 
there's not like a fixed amount of people that watch news every day, no matter what, right? If a war happens, uh, you know, then you're going to get more people watching news. So it's a business. I, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, CNN, you know, started like in what, 1981 or whatever, but it really only hit a big in 1990 with the first uh, war in Iraq, the Persian Gulf War. And people were glued to their TV, you know, they could get coverage around the clock. So, you know, business, you know, news businesses understand that, that there's a profit motive here. And boy, gosh, what's happened? We've had more wars since then, you know, sure. shocker. Yeah. But Fox actually is incorporated as an entertainment company, which is an interesting point because it allows them to skirt some accountability, funny enough. However, I think, I think there's a general distaste with all mainstream news right now. That's including Fox, that's including CNN, MSNBC, because you look at them as the, like they sell, right? They have narratives that come from above and they're trying to get as many eyeballs and they make a lot of money. But in terms of um, making cultural change, I think Tucker is in a different category entirely. The amount of clips I've seen from Tucker's show that have come downstream as, wow, that was really poignant truth to power there. I just don't really see from any other main yeah. news. I mean, is Morning Joe really sticking it to the man? Like, uh, the answer is no. So it's interesting to me, what is Tucker going to go do next? Because I've already seen some clips come out of him on other podcasts saying, hey, I had to sell the Iraq war and I regret that. I did that because it was handed down to me. So he's I, I, like red pilled is kind of a, a cute phrase that gets turned around, but I think he really has had his eyes opened, I think, and now realizes his power. So I don't know. But so Fox News is by no means socially conservative, right? So, you know, they have, they, they bring in Bruce Jenner, you know, uh, whatever his new name is, I forget. You know, they, uh, they always use the appropriate pronouns, social, you know, politically correct pronouns for all their stories about trans stuff. They actually did an, uh, a news package on Dana Perino's show where they were talking about this brave kid that was, you know, and the parents were supporting him transitioning to a different sex. And so, I mean, I, do I like the fact that Fox News is good on certain things? Yes, but they are not socially conservative. I mean, I was on, I was invited to be, as a guest on Fox like three or four times. And then I made a comment about how if only Christians were better at, at evangelizing, if only we were as good at evangelizing our message as gays are with theirs, because they have all their bumper stickers, with the flags and everything like that. And I wasn't being mean or rude or whatever, but let me tell you, I was not invited back. It was pretty obvious that I had offended the sensibilities. So, I mean, yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't surprise me. It's a very, you know, it's, a, it, it's not a conservative network. You know, it's a moderate network, middle of the road. Better, uh -huh. than, be better than the alternative, I guess. The thing that I hate about the Tucker departure, though, which, again, like, I don't think it'll hurt him. And like you said, Josh, I don't think it'll hurt Fox. They've survived worse, you know. Um, the thing that I hate about it, though, is the, cap the way that it's being capitalized on by, you know, I opened up the New York Times this morning, and they just had the worst characterization of it, where, of course, they front-loaded all of the possible accusations and negative things and horrible things Tucker's done and, you know, white supremacy. And then at the bottom of the article, they go, of course, these are all just speculations and none of them have ever been proven in fact. So it's just that, like, it, an opportunity. Just kind of it's the subtle, casual yeah, character assassination. To, yeah, this was just a little. And then, of course, like AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, everyone's favorite congresswoman, like she goes, deplatforming works and it's important. That was her tweet this morning. And so you just know that they're lining up like we deplatformed him. He's gone. Who else can we get rid of? And uh, I, I hate any, you know, newsworthy item that gives them that kind of 
that kind of leverage, that kind of power. So, well, especially when you juxtapose the coverage of his departure with, with Don Lemon. Don Lemon. <laughs> I looked at Politico this morning, and it was loaded with uh, Tucker being misogynistic, a white supremacist, yada, yada yada. Like, oh yeah, and uh, Don Lemon decided to leave. They and, said that women are in know, their prime in their twenties and thirties, and really like shouldn't get involved <laughs> in politics in their fifties. Like, could you remember? I mean. If if Tucker had actually said that, that would have been on replay all day today on all the networks. Don, no, right. nothing. That was about Nikki Haley too. Nikki which, Haley, you know that you know by all the attacks that Don Lamont did on Nikki Haley, I think it tripled her support from one percent to three percent. So that's you, pretty Don. cool. But <laughs> good job. You know the thing is, uh, you know when you're talking about this stuff, you know uh, AOC just you know being so joyous that that Tucker Carlson's off the air, you know, you say, oh, deplatforming, de she's bragging about it. It's like, you know, th that's what you want. You want the communists to celebrate when you have a defeat, because that means you meant something. I hope Tucker <laughs> comes back even stronger. But like, you know, Sean Hannity left the air. Like, you know, what would AOC even notice? Like, why would she care? Sean Hannity right. doesn't Over do the anything. Target. Good job, Tucker. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but I guess that's why the po the point I was trying to make here is uh, because we're not just we're not just journalists talking about journalists here, which yeah. is which I very hate. annoying yeah. to me. I think we're getting to a larger point that Tucker spoke against the regime in a way that offended the quote unquote sensible people that you were talking about. Why you never got invited back? And I think anyone that is doing anything of substance is doing that because they have to speak against the green and they're doing interesting things. They're bringing on interesting guests. They're trying to get to the bottom of what's really going on. So the biggest sin in, in, in news entertainment, this kind of stuff is being boring. And that's why I can't stand Sean Hannity. He's just boring. He's not interesting. But Tucker, man, he was interesting. He made you think. And what he said about the Iraq war, I'm like, I'm right there with you, bud. I supported it. And I'm like, you know what? I should have listened to Pope Trump all the second. You know, and he was right. You know, it was going to be major consequences and upset the entire Middle East. You know, we had it done better to listen to him. Yeah. And he gave a, an excellent speech, too, at Heritage's 50th anniversary. Heritage uh, has been around for 50 years now, which is crazy. But he, we clipped it, put it in the loop. Maybe some of you have seen it, but he was like, this is no longer the era of there's two sides and I'm going to go write a better policy than the other side. And we're going to come together and the best policy will win. Yeah, because there's no, there was at that time a shared sense of where we want to go. We want more prosperity. You know, we want more freedom and, of expression and, and, you know, all this stuff. We want more people to have jobs. It's, we're all on the same page. That is not anymore. That world is gone. Yeah. And he brought up, you know, the, it's, there's no po defendable policy for castrating children or, or sacrificing our children to right. abortion. That's not like a sensible person, a sensible country won't do that. And so those, there's people that can't be reasoned with. And we've even had some people that have emailed into us as to, well, it, you know, it is all in God's hands. Like, why aren't we emphasizing prayer more? And we're just, politics is messy and God will take care of us. And I think, well, I do. I don't understand that, that argument, I guess. Uh, I mean, yeah, maybe because it's we at Catholic Vote call for prayer all the time. We do prayer campaigns two, three times a year. We, you know, we encourage, we have in our daily loop, we have, you know, here's the saint of the day, here's the daily readings. You know, we encourage people in many ways to deepen their faith and to, and to pray more. I totally agree with what Tucker said in that speech that we're talking about a battle, not just between two sides who both have a shared kind of common sense values. We both want more people to, you know, 
better, more people employed, higher wages. I guess that's not, that's over. That's gone. It, we, you know, we had a debate about, he said, he even said this about abortion, like, okay, we have these difficult cases, someone's raved, and how do you deal with that? But now he made the right point in that speech at Heritage. You had Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen who was like, actually, abortion is good for business. Mm-hmm. Abort your baby. It helps the GDP. Like, right. Right. I mean, so how do you have a debate there? Because, you know, it's not just that you're, you know, it's not even a debate about whether or not this is a baby and the rights between, you know, the mother and the baby and this kind of stuff. It's, you know, we need to have abortion because it's good for the economy. Like, it's bizarre. Like, really? Not just like a tragic thing. And then, of course, what is the argument for mutilating children? You know, age 14, 15, 16. No, there's, there's no not. sensible one, you know. So it's like, how could you debate with someone like that? So, yeah, really interesting. Tucker is such an interesting, polarizing, attention-getting guy. Like you said, he's not boring. So really curious to see where he goes. I really hope he goes, well, first off, if he runs, I would love to see that. But I'd like for him to start his own independent show. I know he was involved with The Daily Caller. He helped found it, but he's no longer involved there. No, and then Glenn Beck had, uh, you know, made some overtures, you know, this week. Say, hey, come on over to the blaze, you know, we'll see. <laughs> Who knows? I, w- you know? I hope he goes the Joe Rogan route. I would totally listen to that podcast. and Because he's yeah. already at Fox. He already pushed the boundary so much by, like, he had Kanye West on. Like, is Sean Hannity talking to Kanye West? Like, <laughs> I'm going to say I highly doubt it. So, yeah, that's interesting. So well, I don't now, know. Uh, I mean, Trump liked Kanye West, so that therefore Hannity would. <laughs> I mean, Hannity is like, so whatever you say, I got my notes. He's the cheerleader. We're going to do a separate podcast of just a ro- Josh's roast session of Sean Hannity. I didn't know this animus was hidden <laughs> Sean Hannity there, special. But... You should have him yeah. on for an interview, Josh. <laughs> I'd love to have him on. Yeah, yeah come on, Sean. Oh, man. No thanks. So, uh, so, yeah, so we move on to answer the inbox here. And this is a question we've gotten a lot in, in our upcoming Hide the Pride campaign. I think it's really relevant. So a question that we've gotten from a lot of people, and I'm going to paraphrase, paraphrase many questions we've gotten. The basic question lies in that if you're doing a campaign where you go to libraries and you take filth off of the children's displays and then you check it out, you take it home, and you, you, we're, you submit the letter that you say, but wouldn't checking it out just signal to the library to order more of that book, meaning there's more demand for it, we need to buy more to replace what's already been checked out, maybe it'll be read that way, and then therefore it won't be an effective campaign. Josh, do you have any thoughts towards that? Well, first of all, I mean... When we did this campaign last year, the American Library Association freaked out and like were crazy against it. And there were all these stories saying how horrible this is, you know, and none of those stories did they say, actually, ha ha, this is going to work in our favor because it shows people like these books. They didn't, you know, so trust me, if that was a winning argument, they would have enlisted it. Now they know that's not the case. Um, the fact is they, they supply these books in the, you know, the, the library, the American Library Association, the people who are part of this are very liberal. And, and they think this is the newest thing they got to embrace. It's the newest civil rights cause. They were supplying these books. They're buying these books regardless of demand. There was no pent-up grassroots demand for it. They're trying to get people to check these books out. They're like, check out these books. This is great. Look at this. So my thought is, no, don't let them evangelize to our children. Scoop the books up. Get them out of view make it less damaging. Let them have that pride month with those books not on display. I think that's much better than to say, well, gosh, technically they might buy more. They're going to buy these books no matter what until we can win control of these school boards. 
No, I don't think that's a winning argument at all. Yeah. Yeah. And I would just add to that too. Like for those participating in this, like we're not encouraging you to be all passive aggressive and like sneak into the library and get the books out and just leave. But we actually hope that you'll register your displeasure. Like this is why we're doing this. And we offer the template letter that you can submit to your library board that you can give to your city council um, to explain like there is, like Josh said, there is no natural market for children who want to be looking at porn, right? So get it out of the libraries. It is it is wrong. It is filthy. And we should be giving kids good books. Like, where's our good books list? Here's what we do want our children to be having access to in the library. And I, like Josh said, everyone on the left reacted to this very strongly last year. And uh, I mean, over the target, we can like kind of make it cute in that way. But they don't react if it's something that ends up working in their favor or that's just a wimpy, empty political theater, right? It actually means something. And you know what? People are surprised. People who run our cities, especially I'm in Connecticut, Deep Blue State, people who run my local city, they're shocked that anyone still thinks that this is a bad thing for children. So if Hide the Pride right. was a moment to like, oh, hello, that we still live here. We still have a voice. Um, absolutely, you know, and you've gone too far. Right, I'll call it a stunt. Yeah, it's a stunt that worked because it got their attention. Well, it was a it was a PR campaign, and it was a discussion, and where we're saying the reason why we're doing this activity, this action, the reason why we are doing this is because this is horrible material that should not be viewed by anyone under eighteen. And so that, you know, they're like, "What?" Just like you said, like, "How dare you?" I thought we were over this. How could you possibly? Yeah, no, you bet. We think it's gross. You bet we're going to try to get it away from kids. I think a missing point, too, is, well, first off, if you do nothing, then the displays are going to still be there. So it's going to be the same if you do nothing. But uh, it makes people have to defend books because it brings attention to the specific books. And they're truly indefensible books. Like for anyone that didn't go do this themselves, because I personally actually went to the library here, uh, there were books with pornographic images within the books. I mean, the books read like total smut. And not only are they smut, it's gender infused. It's super like confusing, gross, extra. So to have, imagine, a, I don't know, a fifth grader reading that because it's in a, in, in a display is uh, really unfathomable. I, I really encourage you if you, are, if you are not sure what we're talking about, a book that I found everywhere called Gender Queer, there's graphic displays of sex acts uh, between boys. So it... Like the, it, yeah. it, so you make people have to defend that. It's indefensible. So it's just an easy win, right? Because I think most normal people would not want their kids in front of that. And if they are someone that would want their kids in front of that, you can't reason with those kind of people. Right. I mean, it goes back, it goes back to Tucker. About, <laughs> yeah. You can't like some people just need to be defeated. They can't be. If you think that children should consume porn, not just your own children, mm -hmm. but other children. I can't, I, where do I meet you there? There's no meeting. Yeah. No. There. Goodbye. Here's your millstone. See you later. Dude, you're crazy. Yeah. And we're on with that. So I'm really looking forward to running that back this year. We have some exciting plans for that. So stay tuned. Next story. So this, Erica actually brought us on my radar, and it has to do with adoption. Adoption is historically a, a Catholic Christian thing. The idea that you'd want to help out kids who need a loving home. And uh, ironically, Christians are kind of being barred from doing this right now, specifically in Oregon. So Erica, can you run us through that story? It was really shocking to me. Yeah, this was a shocking story. So a woman in Oregon, her name is Jessica Bates. She's a mother of five. She is a widow. Her husband died very tragically in an accident um, several years ago. But she, um, she saw a presentation 
given at, I believe it was her local church, about all of the children in Oregon who are in need of loving homes. They're in the foster care system, they're in group homes, and they need a loving home. And she really felt compelled in her heart to start the process of applying to adopt a child from foster care into her very happy home. So she goes through the process. She met with um, she met with a certification officer. And anyone who's been through the foster care system, uh, my husband and I went through some of the training when we lived in Georgia. Um, and you have to meet with an officer, a caseworker officer, to vet you. And this person presented to her that in order to obtain her certification, she would have to agree to quote, I'm reading off of the, the line here, respect, accept, and support the sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression of a child or young adult who's placed in your home. And she said while she would love and treat any child as her own, she could not support an LGBTQ lifestyle. Um, she would not take them to uh, appointments at a gender-affirming clinic if she was given such a child. And so how did the state respond? Well, instead of matching her with a needy child who would fit in with that, you know, that, that didn't want these things, they decided instead that she would not be allowed to adopt any child and that her application to become a foster-to-adopt parent would be categorically denied because of her religious belief. And so she is suing Good the for state. her. And um, it is... Exactly. It's our good friends at Alliance Defending Freedom. We've been working with them a lot to cover the Mifepristone case with the FTA. They are also heading up this case with Jessica Bates. And I'm going to watch it uh, with, with intense scrutiny because this is one of those instances where, like Tom said at the beginning, the very idea of adoption and of loving a child who is not your own really took off with, in the Judeo-Christian tradition. So for our country, where I believe the statistic was 80% of adoptions are two Christian parents in Christian homes. These are the people who are seeking to solve the foster care process, and they're being shut out of it because of this radical trans ideology in states like Oregon. So this case is going to have long and far-reaching implications for many, many Christians and people of you know, just traditional morality who you know, the whole country ascribed to it until five minutes ago. Um, of wanting to actually help children. But again, it's a case of the ideology being willing to sacrifice the well-being of children who just need good homes to uphold this idea that we can um, somehow determine It's not an idea. I mean, it's the state religion. The state religion is, the state is all religion. this trans... The state faith. Trans-sex ideology is a, a new religion. And the state of Oregon rightly understands that this woman's a heretic, right? She doesn't buy into this the state religion of, you know, supporting whatever your sexual identity is or whatever. So, uh, you know, 20 years ago, they, they were coming after Catholic charities because we refused to adopt uh, kids to homes that, of same-sex couples. So, so they, they first made that illegal. Got to make, gotta make Catholic uh, adoption agencies illegal. Now, <laughs> you can't even be a Christian and adopt. So they're not even, they're not just shutting down the Christian charities, they're shutting down Christians. It's pretty pathetic. 80% of people adopting, if they're Christian, truly Christian, and they hold the views that God, you know, made man and woman, and you're born inside the body that God intended you to have, that body and soul are connected, that's 80% of people no longer adopting kids. Isn't that a net negative on society? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I love this line um, from the statement from Alliance Defending Freedom. So um, their legal counsel, Johannes Wilhelm Delfonts, he said this statement. He goes, Oregon's policy makes a sweeping claim that all persons who hold certain religious beliefs 
beliefs held by millions of Americans from diverse religious faiths are categorically unfit to care for children. And I think that that is, it's a warning call because if they start to say things like, well, you're unfit to adopt children from the foster care system, what else are we going to be unfit to do? Well, we're going to be unfit to teach children in schools. To raise our own children, right? To raise our own children in homeschools. Exactly. So this case is very important. And I just, kudos to Jessica Bates because she really is out there on the front lines. I mean, she could have just said, okay, fine, I'll go home. I'll adopt a child privately through Catholic Charities or an organization that actually supports me. But she said, no, I am going to sue because I understand that I am a case. I'm on the front lines for this question. For It's a bigger question than just foster to adopt. Yeah, for sure. And I like when people stand on that principle, for sure. And I don't know why this came up, but I almost feel like we have to talk about it. Erica, you did an interview with Father uh, Carlos Carlos Martins. Martins who is an exorcist, he's been an exorcist for 20 years in the Archdiocese of Detroit. <laughs> and I can't stop thinking about that interview. And it, even like within our office, we talked about it all morning. That's awesome. I mean, what an excellent interview. If you haven't gone and watched this, right after you're done listening to this, it is the episode before this. It is with Father Carlos Martins. Please listen to it. It, it was mind-blowing. But anyway, he talked about this new movie, Nefarious. And... It is done by two convert devout Catholics, and it is actually kind of, they describe it as a modern day screw tape letters. But if you watch the trailer for it, it, it plays like a horror movie. Like it, it was, it, it was well done. Cinematography was amazing, but it, it was interesting. You brought up for Christians, you know, you view things through this Christian lens. And then for this movie, it was done by Christians. So it's a Christian movie, but interestingly, uh, father Carlos said that this movie wasn't actually made for Christians. I mean, it was a movie and the movie itself is theologically accurate, but so much of what's done in society right now uh, is demonic. And until listening to that interview, I was like, oh, we're fighting this, this is bad, we're fighting this, this is bad. But the amount of celebration that happens for things like this, where it's, for example, abortion policy or the transgender movement, uh, it's it is not of Christ. It's demonic, and people are celebrating when it happens, similar to in this movie, Nefarious. They're celebrating all the evils of the world that we don't necessarily see as a spiritual battle. And so, I don't know. I just thought about this case specifically through the lens of there's a real spiritual fight going on right here. Like, those kids not getting loving homes and Christians being demonized in society, It's we are fighting on a spiritual plane. And when I heard him talk about it, it actually gave me some comfort because it knows it allowed me to see where the battle lines are drawn. You know, I don't fear what I don't, I fear what I don't know, but when I know something, it takes some fear away from it. So, yeah, I don't know. It was an amazing interview. That was one of those like once in a, like highlights of my time at Catholic Vote interviews. Um, And just his humility was so striking. Um, I think what struck me too, you know, we were talking about the difference between Nefarious, the movie and the movie that just came out, The Pope's Exorcist, which is much more the classic exorcism movie where the heads spin around and there's levitating and blood spurting and all that gross stuff. And Father Carlos, he makes a comment in the interview, and this is a teaser, but he talks about how when he was first an exorcist in the early days, he would see that. He has seen that. He's seen the levitation and the gross stuff and things flying across the room, smashing and all that. But over time, that gets boring almost for him. It's like, okay, I've seen that. So exactly how he said it was the first time you see it, it makes your hands stand up. The 30th time you see it, still a little weird. The 300th time you see it, like I've been there, done that. How about like, that? Just, yeah, you know, and then the battle becomes more internal. Like the internal. devil, you bore so, me. So yeah, go listen to the interview. It's 
Yeah, exactly. Well, he basically <laughs> said that, like the demons, like they figure out, oh, he's bored with this doesn't impress anyone anymore. So they have to come up with something else. And they do. So go listen to the interview to hear what comes next after the light bulb smashing is old hat for the exorcist. But it was a great interview. And I think it does touch on a lot of the stories that we um, that we cover because there's more in yeah. going on than, you know, just what people are doing. So, But the positive to it is he said the solutions are very simple. Uh, receive the sacraments frequently. Stay in a state of grace. Go to mass. Receive the Eucharist. The solutions are simple. And I think naturally as humans, we, we think there needs to be this complex ritual that we do to protect us from all the unknowns. And in reality, we've already been given the playbook. You know, Jesus Christ has given us the power through his resurrection. We rely on that power, not anything that we do. So that, I don't know, it almost is like, I was like, I'm going to listen to this interview and I'm going to be freaked out. But honestly, it wasn't that. I listened to it and I actually have a new sense of calm, I think, about seeing the battlefield clearly. And I really want to thank Father Carlos for doing that. And I want to promote his podcast as well. He actually has a podcast uh, called The Exorcist Files. He, this was fascinating too. He specifically made it for uh, secular people during COVID because he saw a Pew Research poll. The research poll said that Americans have become less religious significantly. However, there was a spike in Americans that were acknowledging the devil. So it isn't that Americans have become less spiritual or acknowledge that there may be something beyond human plane. It was that they're losing faith in organized religion, which also ironically is the protection that comes from the things you're scared of. So he got voice actors to reenact some of his experiences as an exorcist. And uh, it became the most popular religious and religion and spirituality podcast in the world, I think. Yeah. And, and it's, it's yeah. bone chilling. So fair warning. It's easier to watch than watching an exorcism movie, though. So uh, I yeah. listened to so it a little anyway, bit. Really interesting. If you're peaked, go check it out. Uh, I want to help promote that because yeah. I really appreciate uh, his initiative because it, the spirituality thing reaches a lot of people that aren't Catholic or aren't Christian, but are kind of peaked like their interest is peaked it's, it's an interesting there's an unknown element there and by encountering that that actually kind of encourages them to look for solutions <laughs> because it's like this is here this is scary i need to go find help and of course the most well-established help tradition in the spiritual plane is the catholic church so uh it's like theology without preaching you know it's it's just yeah i once heard someone say if your house is haunted do you call do you go call the Episcopalian pastorist down the street or do you call a Catholic priest? And people always call the Catholic priest when there's a demon around. Yeah. That's was, for that, a uh, was that was that Jen Fulweiler? I think so. I think <laughs> Shout so. Out yeah. to Jen. She's, hey. she's got good stuff. Shout out, Jen. All right. So we move into the Twilight Zone. We have an excellent writing team here at Catholic Vote. Um, our articles are included in the loop and they are on the website. But one of the articles that we wrote up was specifically in Florida a pride parade was canceled. Now, that, I just saw that headline. I was like, oh, that, that's awesome. And the reason I said that is because so many of these pride parades are just gross, explicit. There's like sex toys everywhere. People are dressed inappropriately. They're, it's just the most crass thing you could see. And kids are there. I mean, children are there. I, I don't want to see it personally. I, I don't want to go by that or, or celebrate in any way, shape, or form. So the... Organizers of an LGBTQ pride fest in Florida canceled their parade after lawmakers in Florida passed legislation that would forbid exposing children to sexually explicit and lewd forms of entertainment. Now, they didn't deny that there were sexually explicit and lewd forms of entertainment at this parade, 
So they just decided to cancel it. Uh, they said that they regretfully were going to cancel the event uh, because there probably would have been arrests from what was going on at that event. So I think that that's very telling of what is going on at these parades. And I would love to see legislation like that pass in the future to protect our communities from, I don't know, maybe we've just gotten desensitized, but I can't imagine stuff like that flying, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, no way. And I, I think they changed the whole fest to being an adult only event. So it's like you have to be 18 and up to even get into the fest now. <laughs> the language from the organizers when they canceled it was, it's a sad state of affairs when it comes to this and we have to hide our pride. And I had the pride. And like, uh, sad I've heard state that of before. Affair. Like, oh, that sounds <laughs> familiar. I've heard that. Yeah. Yeah. But so, and taking... Erica, that's funny. It reminds me as well. Uh, Florida just passed uh, a death penalty for people who sexually abuse minors. <laughs> Hold on a second. The first thing was they passed a law saying that you, you, you still need a unanimous jury to convict somebody. Okay. But this law lowered the threshold for the sentencing. So, okay, you need everyone to say the guy's guilty. He's guilty. Okay. Then you move on to sentencing. Then it, the Florida law used to be that you needed unanimous jury to say, yes, he deserves the death penalty given the circumstances and what the law says. This new law says you just need eight of the 12 jurors to say, yeah, let's go with the death penalty. That's the change. Okay. So the, the, whatever crimes are capital crimes in Florida remain capital crimes. You're talking about a different bill, which would be to expedite the capital punishment for uh, people who raped children. So what, what we wrote about in the loop was we yes. just simply explained it, you know, like, um, and, you know, when, when there's changes in the laws and euthanasia, capital punishment, abortion, we cover it. And so somebody wrote in yeah. and said that we weren't being critical of Florida governor Ron DeSantis for this. And so to, to me, this was like a very small thing. It, it, it does actually make capital punishment more possible because you lower the threshold. So I get that. But they made a, pro they made a remark that we, we didn't condemn it. See, the whole point of what we do when we recap the news in the loop is we try to tell you this exactly what happened. And if you want to click the story, you can read more about it. And a lot of people in our audience will think, gosh, I like Ron DeSantis, but I don't like the death penalty. Therefore, I'm not so happy he did this. Yeah. There might be some people who go, I actually support the death penalty. You know, I wasn't condemning it. Um, and that's the problem that they had. I didn't condemn the death penalty in writing up what happened. Um, the Catholics are free to disagree about yeah. this issue. And this, there's been, a, I think, a lot of confusion on this. And I don't blame just Francis. I think he made it worse. But I also, as much as I love Pope John Paul II, I think there's been a, a forgotten element in the discussion about the, uh, the death penalty amongst Catholics. Now, I'm very open to a pragmatic argument saying, look, given the way things are in government, how, how government screws things up and how governments are persecuting Christians, maybe we shouldn't have the death penalty. That's a very good argument to make. However, the arguments that Pope John Paul II started with and that have been carried on with Benedict and Francis is that uh, we have a very sophisticated society today. There's no reason that we need to, to execute somebody. We could have them in prison for the rest of their life. And it completely, I think, forgets one whole element of this discussion, which is, is, you know, what is the appropriate punishment for the crime? If you were to steal a candy bar 
and you had to spend 20 years in jail. I mean, that's just that, that, that is not proportion. That's totally disproportionate. disproportionate. Right. And right. if you, you know, if you were to kill somebody, it, you should spend the rest of your life in jail. If you, let's say in cold blood massacre 20 people and yep, I guess you'll just spend the rest of your time in jail. There's an argument to be made. Like, is that really a punishment that fits the crime? You know? And so I think that's a very important discussion to have. I think Catholics have Theologians have discussed this for 20 centuries. St. Paul wrote about capital punishment being something that the state says is fine. Yeah. Thomas Aquinas wrote yeah. about it. Mm-hmm. Aquinas, well, Aquinas's point, which I think is, is relevant, is that if it's in the best interest of protecting society, if you don't have that prison system, if you say you're in a tribe somewhere and there's someone going around raping and killing children. Yeah, there's no question there. The question then would be in the civilized society. That was what John Paul was saying. If you have a civilized society, you know, you have... he. You know, he's not going to catch anyone again. He's, well, you put him behind bars, he won't do it. He has no ability to cause further harm. Yeah, and but the, but I think what people intentionally obfuscate the arguments are when they compare it to, like they're, they only bring up the death penalty, but they never talk about abortion. And they're like, well, you support the, the like, how could death penalty people that don't like it also support abortion in some cases when there's an innocent child involved? You know, actually, it's funny you say that because I've got a perfect hook for you on this. Okay? Please, let me have it. I got in a discussion about this very thing with Archbishop Paglia about six no. years ago. My jaw dropped. I did. I did. Yeah, now he's the, now he, for people who don't know, he's the Archbishop that was appointed by Pope Francis to be head of the Pontifical Academy for Life. And he was making a comment, you know, like Thomas Peters, my friend, used to be here at Catholic Vote. He was talking about, you know, the same thing you kind of get at, like, except for the gun debate. And, you know, he's like talking about, you know, pro-life and someone's like, well, what about all the gun deaths? And Thomas Peters is like, okay, liberal Catholics always pounce on conservatives when we favor the Second Amendment. They're like, oh, you love guns, but you don't care about, you know. And so they make the connection on our side because it never happens the other way, right? Guns that, uh, organizations that are against guns are never scolded for not being pro-life. Isn't that interesting? But it's only pro-lifers who get scolded on being on the wrong issue. So, but Paglia republished what this one person attacked Tom Peters for, right? And so I just was, I, I've, I had enough. I was just, I was respectful. But I said, you know, when we talk about immigration, we talk about immigration. But when we talk about abortion, suddenly it's guns, torture, war, death penalty, whatever. It's like, you know, what's going on here? Why can't we just have it as, when we talk about an abortion, why can't we just talk about abortion? Why is it that every time we talk about abortion, which, you know, happens 4,000 times a day in this country, like, why can't we have that discussion? What? No, well, let's talk about the death penalty, which happens like 30 right. times a it's year. It's that seamless garment. Yeah, it's that seamless garment line that they bring up. Well, you know, we're going to talk about ways to defeat Roe v. Wade. Oh, well, we need to talk about 75 other things that need to happen first. And that, that whole using the seamless garment argument of the, like, you know, Catholic social teaching, it's all one and all of that, it's, it's a way of deflecting from, and it's, it's criticizing people who realize there's a hierarchy Absolutely. of goods, right? There is a hierarchy of goods, seamless garment, whatever. We need to, as Catholics, be able to have these discussions, yes. But like, for example, I wouldn't go into like an American Diabetes Association party and be like, uh, guys, we need to talk about gallbladder cancer 
Like, why are you just so obsessed with diabetes? You know, there are, it is okay for different people to have different causes, et cetera, in the church. But at the same time, we have to recognize the hierarchy of goods. And that's something that is lost on crowds who are like anti-capital punishment, anti, um, and I think that that's the frustration. Well, right. And they never do it on their side either, right? So like the liberal Catholics never say to, you know, Helen Pergine, who's a totally against the death penalty, like, hey, why don't you condemn abortion while you're at it? You've got a big platform. We've got a lot of people follow you. Why don't you do that? And she's like, oh, it's not really my issue. Uh, it's so full of baloney. And so this is what I said to the Archbishop Pagley. We're going back and forth a bit on, on Twitter. This is a few years ago. And I just said, you know, why don't we rename it then the Pontifical Academy for Life, Gun Violence, Immigration, and Healthcare, right? No, we have a, a, it called this for a reason. It's the Pontifical Academy for Life. It should be pro-life. It should be fighting for life. It should be talking about abortion, which is the number one crime against life. And also, yes, bring up euthanasia, which, by the way, Archbishop Paglia totally flubbed this week and said he could personally, I personally wouldn't be in favor, but I could see why he basically endorsed a law in favor of euthanasia. So, again, another scandal. And it's like, what, what is the point here? And it's like this, this a Pontifical Academy for Life was set up by John Paul II to be a beacon for life. And now we've got it run by a guy who's talking about guns, talking about immigration, talking about healthcare, talking about anything but life. And then when he does talk about pro-life stuff, he totally flubs it. It's tough. Yeah. What a waste. Erica. Eric Rosnell. Moving on from <laughs> Father, what a waste. So yeah, yeah. this is truly Twilight Zone material, and I'm going to be cute here in the headline, but then I'll break it down for you. The Church of England was shut out of the Anglican communion. For those of you who are uh, lovers of the word, Anglican means English. So the fourth global Anglican future conference met last week in Kigali in Rwanda, and it brought together 1,300 delegates from 52 countries all over the world, from all of them from the Anglican communion, uh, which traditionally um, has its head as the Archbishop of Canterbury. He's considered, quote unquote, the first among equals. Um, there were over 300 Anglican bishops and more than 450 other clergy. Now, they were voting on a resolution in reaction to just a month ago, the Church of England, again, where the Archbishop of Canterbury is the head, and it is sort of the seedbed of the rest of the Anglican communion, the Church of England voted to allow blessings of same-sex marriages. Here's the statement that came out of the Global Anglican Future Conference. Quote, since the Lord God does not bless same-sex unions, it is pastorally deceptive and blasphemous to craft prayers that invoke blessing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it continues, public statements by the Archbishop of Canterbury and other leaders of the Church of England in support of same-sex blessings are a betrayal of their ordination and consecration vows to banish error and to uphold and defend the truth taught in Scripture. This is very strong language. And not only did they condemn them, but they actually voted to eject the Church of England from the Anglican Communion and begin a process of resetting the, they call them the instruments of communion, the structure of bishops, and to replace the Archbishop of Canterbury. So big doings in the Anglican world there. And I think it does have an impact on Catholics. One, because we have this wonderful thing called the ordinariate, where if you're unhappy, with the way that the Church of England is going, you 
Father, and your entire congregation can come into the embrace of the Church of Rome, which happens to be apostolic. We have our own first among equals, um, our own structure that traces back to Peter. So welcome home, Anglicans. Uh, and we'll see. We'll be, it'll be very right. interesting to see how this plays out. But Can yeah. you say that segment again, but in an English accent? Oh, well, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I will pull out my Mary Poppins for this one. But. <laughs> Don't tempt me. I mean, this is this is just this is just weeks before the coronation of the head of, of the Church of you know, England, the official ceremony. King Charles the Third. Yeah, yeah, right. Although I crazy. think that the coronation plans detail uh, welcoming of all faith traditions, including some crazy Eastern stuff going on. So I'm not sure Charles is going to be too broken up about this. And in fact, the um, the head of the Archbishop of Canterbury, Wembley, he came out with a statement saying. You know, uh, we're reacting to this. We're saddened by this turn of events. But as we walk together in the Anglican communion, I'm like, you're not walking together, Wembley. They just told you you're not walking together anymore. They like try, they're like trying to break up with him. But he's like that boyfriend who just won't leave. You're like, no, I said, <laughs> no, we broke up. And he's like, no means no. I love you. And we'll be walking together to the end. It's just awful. It's like, like come he's on. He's outside your door with a boombox. Yeah, it's a bad so, breakup. Um, yeah, it sounds like these that make you kind of grateful to be Catholic, I guess. You know, we got our own issues, but uh, man, yeah, we got our issues. It isn't always mess. pretty, but like we know where we're at and we know the gates of hell, et cetera, all that. Yeah. Shout out to our boy, Calvin, Calvin Robinson yeah. too. He's a deacon in the free church of England. He gave the, one of the single best, uh, theologically sound arguments against blessing same-sex unions at an Oxford debate. I will link it in the comments or in the in the show notes. It truly was like it, I think it's twelve minutes long. It was airtight. The guy's just an absolute animal. He's so good, so logical. Um, maybe he'll make his way to the Catholic Church. Yeah, I had days, an exchange but... with him on Twitter actually yesterday. I uh, I tapped him and I because he he'd made a comment about how they're gonna they're gonna replace the Archbishop of Canterbury with a new first among equals. And so I oh gosh, my tweet replying to him was. Uh, if only there was a church that was had apostolic succession and a first among equal <laughs> structure for you to go to. And he he messaged me back. He goes, well, you know, it's a shame about that papal infallibility uh, thing. You know, it's a very modern notion. So we went back and forth. I don't think I convinced him of anything. But uh, Calvin, you have a home here. I can't wait to welcome you into uh, the, the true Church of England, the Catholic Church, the Church of all the world. <laughs> All right, so all the listeners remaining, you can put your tea down and your crumpets down. We're going to move on to Josh Mercer, the most red-blooded American we have on staff. So, Josh, what's your twilight zone? Well, you know, we talked about Paglia, and, you know, he's obviously, he was in a twilight zone with his comments on, you know, um, euthanasia. Um, but my other twilight zone is, again, another public statement by, you know, Catholics that just off the wall. And so um, we got this uh, new thing now where they want to, Catholics want to recommend you use the proper pronouns. And um, well, when you say Catholics, the, you got to be clear here. Who, who are we talking about? Yeah, exactly. It's outreach. You know, outreach is that, you know, I mean, they're reaching way out there. I mean, they're out there. It's a reach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a reach. I mean, it's like their article here was the, 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 the Catholic case for using, choosing your own pronouns. And again, this is just like another thing about what outreach does and a lot of other 
the dissident groups do. They, they really feel like the bishops need to listen. The bishops need Dialogue. to listen. Uh, and what do they need to listen to? Apparently, they need to listen to everything that's on the left uh, you know, and, and embrace the, their truths and stuff like that. And so th this was just an article by a Jesuit. I know how crazy that is, that I would be a Jesuit. Um, and, and just to understand that, you know, uh, people have non-binary students, whatever that is, uh, transgender people, people who apparently can switch from boy to girl, girl, boy, yeah, okay. Two-spirit. So you need to embrace your own pronouns. So I'm just wondering, like, in light of what you talked about, about the Church of England and, you know, the coronation coming up, I think maybe I should choose my own pronouns. I, maybe you guys could refer to, you know, to me as your majesty. No, Josh. How about that? Uh, That'll be no, my pronouns. I have, a, I have a better suggestion. We offer a trade to the Church of England. We'll take Calvin Robinson. They can take Outreach I Ministries. I like that. We can draw so, up the papers, get it done for you. Get it done. Yeah. Get in touch we'll with our agent. We'll take Calvin. We'll be nice to Calvin. We could use Calvin. We'll give you Father James Martin and the outreach crowd. I mean, I'd trade Father James Martin for a pack of gum, but if I could get Calvin mm -hmm. too, that'd be great. Yeah, so our outreach ministries, we, I mean, it's almost laughable at this point, but it's, it's Father James Martin's ministry, and they, they are a very single-issue group. Their single issue is uh, LGBTQ takeover of the Catholic Church. Yeah. Religion. Yeah, it's, it's, it's embodying yeah. the new religion. Because every article they write is, it's sexual identity and gender first, not Catholic first. It's even a rejection. So they start off with that. I'll take it one It's like reverse farther. engineering. Yeah, go yeah, for it. Yeah, we're going farther. So one of the women that he interviews in this article about the pronouns, Annie Selak, she's a PhD of something. But Annie Selak, she's trying to explain how like the church needs to confront its wounds. And that's why people are uncomfortable with, you know, alternative pronouns. And she starts talking about how we need to acknowledge the marks of the church. And she goes, I look to the four marks of the church when I'm considering pronouns, unity, Catholicity, oneness, and holiness. And I'm like, that's not even the marks of the church, Annie. Where'd you get that? It's, it, <laughs> like, that's not even it. She just made up her own marks of the church. And then, and then later on, Annie is like, I want to believe that God is calling us to something greater and something deeper. And that's so scary because we don't know what that would look like. She literally says, it. I'm like, it looks like the Eucharist, Annie. You Wait, belong to the Catholic Church. A... You missed it. We do know what it looks like. It looks like the cross on Calvary. But uh, I mean, it's just not even Catholic. Baltimore Catechism quiz for you. What is that? Isn't it to know, love, and serve? Something like oh, that. why did God make me? Is that what you're yeah. asking me? God made me to know, yeah. love, and serve him in this life and be happy with him forever in the next. What are the four Bam. marks of the true church? The four marks of the church are one holy Catholic and apostolic. Wait, have you taught before? <laughs> a little bit. I've taught at least six kids. <laughs> Jeez, I need to sign up for some of your religion classes. I, I, I need to get on that. But yeah, I, I'm just going to offer to send outreach a Baltimore catechism, and then we'll see if they're fans of book burning at I that point. I think they might burn it. So uh, this is the point of the episode where if you can't get enough loop, you're looking for something else to listen to, highly, highly recommend our interview with Father Carlos Martins. He is an exorcist. He's done for 20 years. We talked about a lot this episode. One of the best interviews I think we've ever done. Shout out to Erica. So go check that out. I'm going to leave it linked in the YouTube video. I'm gonna, it's also the episode before on Apple Podcasts. So if you want to help the program here, rate us. So five stars goes a long way. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to, if you can rate us, that's awesome. If you're on YouTube, like, leave a comment, subscribe. And it really helps us get as many people as possible. So if you could share it with people you know you think would like this, we'd get a lot of value from it. Share it. It means that's the biggest praise you could give us. And uh, we're looking forward to a big week upcoming here with our involvement with the FBI. We'll keep you tuned on that. 
that's a little bit of a tease, but we do have big news coming. So make sure you uh, turn on notifications for this. You subscribe to the podcast. Uh, we appreciate all of you so much. Seriously, you are the reason why we do it. We're so grateful for all of you in the audience listening here and supporting our work. And we will see you on the next one. Bye, guys. You know, actually, we'd even take a four-star review. <laughs> <laughs>